0: Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, February 24th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. With a look at
1: today's top stories, NATO powers back the Netherlands' outgoing premier for the alliance's top role. German lawyers sue Olaf Scholz over Gaza. Honduras's ex-president faces a U.S. drug trafficking trial.
0: Shamima Begum loses her citizenship appeal in a U.K. Islamic State group case. A magician
1: takes responsibility for the New Hampshire Biden deepfake.
0: A gold mine
1: collapse in Venezuela kills over 20. A deadly apartment block inferno strikes Valencia, Spain. Vice lays off hundreds of staff and will no longer web publish. Reddit files a long-awaited initial public offering.
0: And a U.S. company makes an historic lunar landing.
1: In our top story, top NATO powers endorse an outgoing Dutch Premier as their leader. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Politico, Radio Free Europe, France 24, and European Conservative. Britain, France, Germany, and the U.S. on Thursday publicly expressed support for outgoing Dutch Prime Minister Mark Root to succeed NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg, who is set to step down in October. This support, along with that of about 16 other NATO allies, should put Root in a strong position for the role. However, 31 NATO members must endorse his nomination, and Root still faces reported resistance from Hungary, Turkey, and Eastern European countries. Also Thursday, there were reports that Romania notified the alliance its president, Klaus Iohannis, is interested in leading NATO. Bucharest declined to comment. Danish Prime Minister Meet Fredriksson who had been rumored as a candidate to replace Stoltenberg, said Thursday she would refuse the job. The Secretary General of NATO role has traditionally been filled by a man from a Western European country, including three from the Netherlands.
0: Well, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric laid out the facts for us, and our first narrative spin is a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. NATO will face many major challenges in the months ahead, including the continuing war in Ukraine and a possible return of Donald Trump to the U.S. presidency and Root is the best person to lead the alliance.
1: Carnegie Europe gives us an establishment critical narrative. Support for Root is revealing the divisions within NATO. Older NATO members treat Central European countries, Poland and the Baltic states, as second-class allies, even two decades after they fully exceeded the alliance. These countries increased their defense spending and warned about Russian President Vladimir Putin's imperial ambitions, and they should have a bigger say in leadership.
0: We have a pro-Russian narrative from Pravda. Rue is a proven Russophobe who's committed to the globalist West's proxy war in Ukraine. As the new NATO leader, he'll carry out plans from the White House despite his low approval ratings in his own country. NATO seems determined to always be at odds with Moscow. Just when you thought the spins were going to stop.
1: Nope. Here comes Metaculus with their nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that NATO will have at least 32 members on December 31st, 2025. <coughs>
0: German lawyers sue Schultz and allege complicity in Gaza. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Middle East Monitor Yannis Safak, the New Arab Al Jazeera, and the Anadolu Agency. A group of German lawyers announced Friday they are suing members of the country's Federal Security Council, including Chancellor Olaf Scholz, for aiding and abetting Israel's campaign against Gaza, which the lawyers characterize as a genocide. The lawyers representing Gaza families have also named Vice Chancellor Robert Hayback, Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock, and Finance Minister Christian Linder in their criminal complaint. The lawyers allege the German government authorized the export of $350 million worth of weapons to Israel to perpetrate the current genocide. The suit comes days after Schultz urged Tel Aviv to abide by international law amid Israel's reported preparations for an assault on the southern Gaza city of Rafah. Previously, Schultz, in November 2023, called for a two-state solution to the long-standing Middle East conflict and criticized Israel's building of new illegal settlements on Palestinian territory. The lawyers, however, say that instead of stopping Israel, at least since the International Court of Justice's preliminary findings in January, German officials have incited genocide.
1: Thanks, Scott. The first spin is Narrative A, coming from U.S. News & World Report. Germany must maintain its support for Israel with the utmost clarity. Historically, even the country's left-wing parties have been unwavering in backing the Jewish state. Due to German society's history, the country's raison d'etre is to protect and support the Jewish people. This support has been material, moral, and even legal, per
0: Berlin's declared stance at the International Court of Justice. And Narrative B comes from The Guardian. Germany's blank check to Israel offered as atonement for history completely misses the point of that sentiment. The political class has so far been unable to acknowledge Israel's brutal policies in Gaza, which is inadvertently stifling Germany's evolution into a country that is truly reckoned with its terrible past. It's admirable that German society seeks to redeem itself, but supporting the wanton killing of Palestinians does the opposite. Metaculous'
1: nerd narrative says there's a 2% chance of Israel joining the EU before January 1, 2050. The latest news in Honduras, the ex-president faces a drug trafficking trial in the US. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, TRT World, Courthouse News Service, Al Jazeera, Wall Street Journal and Democracy Now! Former Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez appeared in a New York courtroom earlier this week to face allegations that he ordered his country's army to protect cocaine traffickers in exchange for millions of dollars in bribes. If convicted, he could face life in prison. Hernandez is the first former head of state to face drug trafficking charges in the U.S. after Panama's General Manuel Noriega, who was convicted for drug smuggling and money laundering charges more than 30 years ago. On Thursday, former Honduran mayor Alexander Ardon testified under a cooperation deal that drug money, including $1 million in cash from drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, funded Hernandez's presidential campaign in 2013. Previously, Hernandez's attorney had said that many of the expected witnesses, former drug traffickers allegedly shielded by the former president, aren't trustworthy, claiming they often lie and exaggerate in exchange for securing better deals. Once a key U.S. ally in its war on drugs, Hernandez has denied all charges and pleaded not guilty. He claims that charges against him stem from his enemies, and that top American security officials knew what he had done to fight organized crime during his tenure. Former Honduran National Police Chief Juan Carlos Bonilla has already pleaded guilty to cocaine trafficking charges, while Hernandez's brother, Juan Antonio Hernandez, is currently serving a life sentence in the U.S. for smuggling cocaine.
0: All right, Eric, thanks for those facts. Let's start our spins with the pro-establishment narrative from Insight Crime. Though it does seem a bit paradoxical that the U.S. federal government has brought legal action against a foreign ally already known to be corrupt, Washington was just acting pragmatically to maintain its partnership with Honduras as long as Hernandez was the country's leader. Now that he has left office, there's no reason not to hold him accountable for his wrongdoing. The
1: establishment critical narrative comes from The Nation. Due to its own economic interests in Honduras and his hawkish rhetoric about the war on drugs, the U.S. has for too long paid no heed to suspicions against Juan Orlando Hernandez that the U.S. Department of Justice raised during his entire presidency. Though he may be sentenced to life in prison, Hernandez is merely a piece of a corrupt system that America refuses to change.
0: Shamima Begum loses her appeal over U.K. citizenship. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the UK Judiciary, the UK National Archives, and Sajid Javid's ex-profile. Shamima Begum lost an appeal to overturn the UK government's decision to rescind the 24-year-old's British citizenship in February 2019, concluding that the actions of former Home Secretary Sajid Javid were lawful. At the age of 15, Begum traveled to Syria alongside two other individuals, and according to a UK Supreme Court judgment, aligned herself with the Islamic State group, marrying a member of the organization. Begum and her husband surrendered to members of the Syrian Democratic Forces following the collapse of the terrorist organization's self-styled caliphate, and have since been situated in the Al-Hall camp in the northeast of the country. After an appeal to the Special Immigration Appeals Commission was dismissed in February 2023, Begum argued that Javid had not considered whether she was a victim of trafficking whether the deprival of citizenship was proportionate or conducive to the public good and other factors. The UK Court of Appeals concluded that while it could be argued that the decision in Ms. Begum's case was harsh, it could also be argued that Ms. Begum is the author of her own misfortune. The court continued that it was to decide whether government actions were unlawful. Commenting on the decision on X, Sajid Javid stated that he welcomed the court's ruling, continuing that a home secretary should have the power to prevent anyone entering our country who is assessed to pose a threat thanks scott the
1: first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from evening standard it is the job of the home secretary to keep the uk population safe and the risk of allowing a former active islamic state group member back into the country would set a dangerous precedent if individuals leave the uk to join a terrorist organization They should not be expected to be allowed to return to the country that they betrayed and sought to undermine. And the establishment
0: critical narrative comes from the Mirror. If Begum was white and of ethnically British origin, the question of her citizenship would never have been raised. Begum was exploited and horrifically abused for years and by the age of 19 had found herself a widowed mother who had lost three children. The reality is that whether we like it or not, she is UK born and raised. Begum deserves to, like any member of British society, Face the responsibilities of her crimes in the UK.
1: The opinion from Metaculus says there's a 50% chance that at least 25,000 deaths will occur as a result of terrorism in 2025. That was the nerd narrative. A magician takes responsibility for the Biden deepfake. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Forbes, NBC, New York Post, Guardian, and Washington Examiner. A New Orleans based magician named Paul Carpenter has claimed that Democratic consultant Steve Kramer paid him to create the fake audio of President Joe Biden calling on New Hampshire voters not to vote in the state's January 23, 2024 primary. Carpenter alleges Kramer, who recently worked for Biden's primary opponent, Dean Phillips, paid him $150 via Venmo to use AI to create the deepfake audio that was sent out as a robocall to voters ahead of the primary. Carpenter says he has Venmo receipts. The Phillips campaign, which denies any role in the creation of the deepfake, and had paid Kramer nearly $260,000 for his consultancy in December and January, cut ties with him in mid-February following the robocall allegations. Carpenter, who has held world records for the fastest straightjacket escapes and most fork bends in under a minute, said he was able to create the AI-generated audio in 20 minutes for just a dollar by using software from the AI company Eleven Labs. The fake audio, which reached thousands of voters, prompted New Hampshire Attorney General John Formella to investigate Texas-based company LifeCorp for allegedly sending it out. Kramer says he will respond in an op-ed.
0: All right, thanks for those interesting facts. Eric, we have a Democratic narrative spin from Huffington Post. This case should serve as a warning of how AI can be used to interfere in future elections. Luckily, Biden was still able to win with his write-in campaign, despite not being on the ballot and this robocall discouraging people from voting. Law enforcement and the Federal Communication Commission, which have each taken positive action, should be on high alert moving forward. Daily Wire
1: comes back with a Republican narrative. This was an obvious criminal action, and whoever was responsible should be held accountable. But one can't ignore that Democrats brought this on themselves with their decision to defy New Hampshire's pleas and instead change the primary schedule. Biden wasn't on the ballot, so a more effective bit of bad-faith Democratic Party malfeasance could have led to an embarrassing loss for the president.
0: And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculous. There's a 10% chance that the U.S. will have mandatory disclosure requirements on deepfake technology before January 1st, 2025. I was playing around with that 11 Labs stuff. It's pretty amazing, especially if someone's famous and they already have Biden's voice loaded up on the thing. When that that guy says it took him 10 minutes, I'm sure it did. (laughs) Tragedy strikes Venezuela as over 20 are dead following a gold mine collapse. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, Fox News, and CNN. An illegal gold mine collapsed in the jungles of the Venezuelan state of Bolivar, with one official stating that 23 bodies had been recovered from the open pit known as Bula Loca. Following the fatal collapse, residents from the nearby town of La Paragua voiced frustration over what they called a slow response from the government. According to the state's Secretary of Citizen Security, those injured were being transported to a hospital 460 miles or 740 kilometers to a hospital in the capital of Bolivar, a state that is rich in gold, diamonds, iron, and other resources. Following declining revenue from its once-dominant oil industry— Often attributed to management issues as well as U.S. sanctions against President Nicolas Maduro's regime, the government began developing large mining zones across central Venezuela in 2016. Illegal mineral mining, often controlled by criminal groups, has grown throughout that time frame, stretching as far as the Canaima National Park on the Venezuela-Brazil border, about 40 miles or 64 kilometers from La Paragua. Due to the impoverishment of cities, millions of Venezuelans are emigrating en masse, out of urban hubs, and toward these mining regions with the hope of financial reward. Scott, thanks for the facts.
1: The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Human Rights Watch. Nicolas Maduro's government has left Venezuelans no other choice than to travel to rural Bolivar and risk their lives in the dangerous, illegal mining industry. Government officials who are supposed to be cracking down on this criminal enterprise are ignoring and even participating in these abusive operations. The government should be protecting its people from such horrors, not
0: aiding their criminal abusers. And Truthout brings us the establishment critical narrative. While Maduro has struggled to cope with falling oil revenue, the reason behind this failing economy is due to U.S. interventions and Venezuelan elections as well as sanctions on its oil industry. For decades now, the U.S. foreign policy establishment has kneecapped every populist politician whose agenda was to democratize government and industry, which is why the people have now been forced into poverty and thus a legal means of making an income. A deadly
1: apartment block inferno strikes Valencia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent, Guardian, The Telegraph, Associated Press, Reuters, and NDTV. At least 10 people have died and multiple others have been injured after a huge fire gutted a 14-story apartment building in Spain's Valencia on Thursday. The toll could rise as Spanish firefighters continue to fight high winds to douse the flames, which has reportedly reduced the high rise to, quote, a skeleton and find at least 19 missing. The fire reportedly began around 5.30 p.m. local time on the fourth floor of the apartment, home to more than 130 flats, before spreading to an adjoining building. Officials say firefighters took nearly six hours to cool down the building's exterior before they could go inside to rescue the residents. The cause of the fire and how many people have been rescued remains unclear. According to clips broadcast by local media, several residents could be seen trapped on their balconies, burning segments of the building falling, and the sound of explosions coming out of the building. Last October, at least 13 people were killed after a fire ripped through a packed nightclub complex in the southeastern Spanish city of Murcia in what was the country's deadliest nightclub fire in three
0: decades. Thanks, Eric. Narrative A on this story comes from CBS. Spain's poor track record of substandard infrastructure planning has profoundly contributed to Valencia's tragic fire. Thursday's tragedy could have been prevented if the building hadn't been covered with highly combustible polyurethane cladding, which is no longer in widespread use. The builder must be charged with manslaughter and negligence, while the government must work toward a concrete infrastructure plan to avoid such incidents.
1: Narrative B comes from New York Post. It's still unclear what caused the blaze, but the authorities have deployed emergency personnel, paramedics, and military units to aid all affected people. Meanwhile, the government is determined to bring anyone responsible for the terrible fire to justice. However, this is an unprecedented tragedy. The priority right now is to find the survivors, secure the area, and care for the victims' families. Then, begin a detailed probe.
0: Vice plans mass layoffs and stops web publishing. Here are the facts on this story as agreed upon by Fortune Magazine, Al Jazeera, The Washington Post, and CNN. Vice Media CEO Bruce Dixon on Thursday in a memo informed employees of hundreds of layoffs and the end of publishing content on the company's flagship website, vice.com, effectively ending its independent news operations. Dixon's memo said it's no longer cost-effective to distribute digital content, and Vice will look to partner with established media companies to distribute content in the future. Previously, Vice in May filed for bankruptcy and was then sold to New York-based Fortress Investment Group for $350 million. Vice, which in 2017 was valued at $5.7 billion, attempted to cut costs by canceling Vice News Tonight, a popular program, and by going through several rounds of job cuts. Despite its financial problems, Vice often won prestigious journalism awards, including sharing the first-ever Pulitzer Prize for Audio Reporting in 2020. Last week, Vice won the Polk Award for television reporting. Vice isn't alone in its struggle against financial challenges. Last month, startup news outlet The Messenger shut down. And Business Insider and BuzzFeed have cut jobs or said they're planning to in the near future. Scott, thank you for the facts. Narrative A is our first spin coming from The Wall Street
1: Journal. Another flashy digital media content producer is on the cusp of disappearing forever. Vice's demise further proves that a business model reliant on appealing to a young audience and increased digital ad revenue can't succeed. These cuts could push Vice back to profitability, and it'll be interesting to see the approach it
0: takes. And Defector brings us Narrative B. This wasn't a failure of Vice's business model. It was yet another example of what happens when private equity overlords try to use a journalistic entity as their private piggy bank. Owners who are dedicated to strong journalism over trying to get rich off the backs of digital content creators could make a go of it and benefit society even in today's difficult media environment.
1: And the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that the woke index in U.S. elite media will top by January of 2025. Reddit files an initial public offering. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, The Guardian, Variety, NPR Online News, Business Insider, and Business Wire. Online forum platform Reddit filed an initial public offering, or IPO, prospectus with the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, on Thursday, paving the way to become a publicly traded company under the ticker symbol RDDT. Expected to hit the market next month, Reddit has been looking to go public for years. Its listing will be the first major tech IPO of 2024 and the first social media IPO since Pinterest in 2019. According to the S1 filing, Reddit's 2023 revenue was $804 million, up from 21% from the previous year, and it had a net loss of 90.8 million, down from 158.6 million in 2022. The company had more than 500 million visitors in the fourth quarter of 2023 and averaged 73.1 million daily active unique users. In a nod to its most loyal users, Reddit will allow certain longtime Redditors to purchase shares in the IPO, a right usually reserved for institutional investors. The largest shareholders of Reddit are Advanced Publications, PRC Tech Company, Tencent, and OpenAI CEO Sam Altman. Altman owns 8.7% of Reddit, and the IPO filing comes just one day after the platform signed a $60 million per year deal with Google to license its content for AI training. It also shows that CEO Steve Huffman, who co-founded the platform in 2005, earned $286 million in 2023. The form doesn't list the number of common stock shares available, and a price range hasn't been established. The filing has yet to take effect, and major banks including Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, and Bank of America Securities are acting as leading
0: book-running managers. Thanks, Eric. We have a Narrative A from The Verge. Not only is Reddit's long-awaited IPO a huge boon for company executives and institutional investors, but it's also a win for ordinary Reddit users, who will have the unique ability to buy shares in the initial offering. Reddit is a platform made up of communities, and the company is showing how much it values its community at large. Powered by its millions of users and high-profile investors, there's little doubt that Reddit's public debut will be a success. CNBC
1: has Narrative B. While Reddit may be doing a nice thing for its loyal users by offering them the opportunity to buy shares in its IPO, the Goodwill offer makes the company's entire deal riskier. IPO investors typically have extensive experience and knowledge, and allowing novices to get in the game could make things worse for them, as well as the company. A social media company that records net losses is already volatile, and allowing users to invest in the IPO makes Reddit an even riskier bet.
0: And appropriately, we have a nerd narrative from Metaculous on this story, saying there's a 56% chance that an S&P 500 tech boom will surpass the dot-com bubble for one quarter or more before 2025. Our final story, a private spacecraft makes the first U.S. moon landing since 1972. And here are the stellar facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, Space.com, New York Times, Al Jazeera, France 24, and The Washington Post. Texas-based intuitive machines successfully landed its Odysseus robotic lander near the lunar south pole Thursday evening, marking the first American moon landing since 1972 and the first moon landing by a private company. Landing the Nova C vehicle near the Malapert A crater, about 190 miles or 300 kilometers from the moon's south pole, was delayed by several hours as flight controllers had to switch to experimental landing software following a problem with the navigation system. After initial transmission problems following touchdown, the company's flight controllers eventually received a strong enough signal from the robotic lander. Later in the evening, intuitive machines confirmed Odysseus was upright and starting to send data. The unmanned spacecraft, built with funding from NASA, began its flight from Cape Canaveral, Florida, on a Falcon 9 rocket launched by Elon Musk's company SpaceX. It's expected to operate for a week on the moon's surface until the lunar night makes it inoperable. Odysseus carried payloads from various commercial customers, as well as scientific and technological instruments for NASA, whose cargo is set to explore weather interactions with the lunar surface, radio astronomy, and related lunar environment aspects for future missions. The mission is part of NASA's $2.9 billion commercial lunar payload services program, of which it paid Intuitive Machines $118 million. NASA hopes the successful mission will help it achieve its goal of putting astronauts back on the moon by 2026. Thank you for those out of this
1: world facts, Scott. The first spin is Narrative A coming from the Sydney Morning Herald. The U.S. is in a new space race against other countries, including China and India. But this one isn't about science. It's a gold rush to make up for plundering Earth's resources. The moon can provide valuable supplies of ice water and other resources. Rather than solving problems on Earth, the world's great powers have shifted their competition into space, which will cause
0: instability at home on our pale blue dot. And the South China Morning Post brings us Narrative B. This mission isn't a chapter in some space race. It's a sign of how two of the world's great powers can cooperate. Chinese scientists will be able to use the technical equipment on board to carry out various astronomical observations while U.S. experts previously were able to use an ultraviolet telescope on China's Chanyi-3 lunar lander. Contrary to apocalyptic predictions, the moon will not be the next site of a worldwide conflict. You know, Scott, you would think a
1: story like this would render a nerd narrative. Oh, hey, there is one, isn't there? The nerds from Metaculous say there's an 11% chance that China will land the next person on the moon. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, February 24th, 2024.
0: Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extract both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: Find out more at Verity.News and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.